Thanks, Rob. And thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks to the organizers of this conference for having us here today. I'm here with my colleague, Amanda, and we are really excited to be here. So this evening, I'm going to be talking about climate change. And what I'm going to be doing is trying to position climate change a bit in a global context and talk a bit about how we think about the problem at CATF and how we are trying to contribute our share to addressing the problem. So I'm gonna start actually with a very quick poll. Um, I don't know how, I'm sure many of us here are familiar with um, the 1.5 degrees C, 2 degrees C. Um, so I wanna know by show of hands, how many of us think warming is likely to peak at 1.5 by the turn of the century? Nobody? Two? Oh, we have five people. Three? Whoa. Five? Higher. Okay, so we have more people saying three and five. Well, uh, let's see. So this is uh, the IPCC view of the world and what the future could look like. And given current trends that if all countries follow the policies that um, they promise to follow, uh, we will be around 3.5 degrees C by the turn of the century. The 1.5 degree pathway is where we will be at if we are able to achieve net zero targets by 2050. And of course, if we went by historical trends, we are looking at around 5 degrees C by 2100. And we are still climbing. So we had a dip uh, during the COVID period, but um, last year we actually saw the highest year-on-year -year emissions increase globally. So we are climbing very quickly. And the world needs more energy and not less. And why is this so? This is because for what some of us may not be aware of, um, living in the US, in the EU, uh, in Australia, other parts of the world where there's access to energy at all times when we need it, the greatest population or the greatest fraction of the world has no access to energy. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, by 2039, out of 10 people will still not have access to energy. Over a billion people globally do not have access to clean energy for cooking. So the world needs more energy and not less. And at CATF, we also believe that we can't conserve our way out of this problem. And this is because there's a limit to efficiency. Um, so here, this graph is really telling. Uh, it's showing that since 1990, we've made significant progress uh, with reducing the energy intensity. So for each unit of GDP, we are using less energy to produce it, but energy demand is growing and growing really quickly. So there's a limit to what we can do with energy efficiency. And um, developing country growth is not in the models. And why does this matter? So this is um, built on data from the IEA, uh, CATF analysis of IEA data, and is the sustainable development scenario of the net zero target. So basically what this scenario is saying is that um, if we are to reach um, net zero by 2050, this is what the per capita consumption of different regions of the world will look like. Now, if we take a look at Sub-Saharan Africa over here and look at the per capita um, um, consumption of energy compared to the OECD average in 2020, which is around 160 gigajoule per person, 
Um, coming down to 2040, um, 118.2 gigajoule per person. So comparing that to the OECD average, there's a huge gap uh, in terms of how much the average sub-Saharan African is consuming or the average African is consuming. Same can be said for India, uh, in China as well. So from an equity perspective, we need to think about what does it mean and what is it going to take for us to be able to provide sub-Saharan Africans or those in the developing world with all the energy that they need, both for electricity access and for cooking. And some may argue that, well, consumption patterns do not have to be the same as what's happened in the developed world. But let's even assume we are pushing it up to half of it. What does it mean for us to be able to build that, uh, that zero carbon energy that's needed to promote global equity in the energy landscape? So uh, at CATF, we say that uh, we need to see about a 50 to 100% increase in energy by mid-century to be able to bring the poor world up to the standards of the rich world. And where is all that zero carbon energy going to come from? So that's the big question that we are trying to crack at CATF. Now, here's a view of uh, world energy consumption. And I really like this graph because I think that it tells a very important story about the path that we've been on to date. So in 1995, when we first adopted the Kyoto Protocol, uh, we had 80% of our energy consumption coming from unabated fossil fuels. By 2015 into 2020, guess what? We are still at 80%. And now the base is even bigger, which means that this is really bad for uh, emissions, which is growing. And another view into the global energy supply today, um, even though we hear a lot about the growth in wind and solar, it's still a really small fraction of our energy supply globally. Most of our energy supply is still coming from oil, from coal, and from gas. Uh, we see um, some, some, some contributions from nuclear, biofuels, and waste, and hydro. But largely, we still live in a very strong fossil economy. And energy transitions are slow. So um, we, most of us have heard a lot about going net zero by 2050. Is that possible? What does that mean? Energy transitions are slow. So historically, um, we saw the first transition, that's the shift from fuel wood uh, to coal. That took about 100 years to happen. Uh, and then we saw a second transition um, that's uh, getting close to the 20th century, uh, shifting from coal to oil, took another 70 to 80 years for that to happen. And then we have a third transition, which uh, may not be complete somewhat, the shift from gas to oil, from oil to gas, excuse me. And then we have, many people believe that we are at the fourth transition, where we are going to see a scale up in renewables and nuclear, takeover from the fossil alternatives. But what does it take for us to do this? It's going to be a monumental task. And how do we provide all that zero carbon energy that we need? And doing this by 2050, it means we need to even push the bar even higher. So what would it take for Transition 4 to be complete? That's the question that we try to address every day at CATF. And there's a dominant view to this, which says that, first of all, suppressed demand. And this is mainly also based on the assumption that the developing world remains poor for a long time, that consumption is constrained. Um, electrify everything. 
Um, everything can be electrified. How you think about conforming industrial and commercial demand uh, to wind and solar availability, and then power the grid with renewables and batteries. So this is a dominant view, but this is only a part of the solution. We cannot rapidly shift our global energy system just by focusing on this subset of solutions. And so at Cleaner Task Force, we believe that we need a holistic approach. And we need to be able to rein in all the options that we can tap into to address the climate challenge as quickly as we can. And so on the supply side, um, on, the, on the delivery side, on the end use side, we need radical shifts. And we need to think about beyond what we can do with wind and solar. We are thinking seriously about advanced nuclear. We are thinking about super hot rock geothermal. We are thinking about decarbonized fossil energy. We are mindful of the fact that um, fossil fuels will not disappear overnight. And while we have them with us, we need to think about how we decarbonize them. What is the role of carbon capture and storage in helping us decarbonize our fossil economy? We, know, we believe that electrifying, electri electric, electrifying processes is going to be a part of the solution, but not everything can be electrified. So think about marine shipping, which cannot be easily electrified. We need zero carbon fuels, and we need to work towards making them a viable option, begin working towards that now. What's the role of ammonia and hydrogen in helping power that economy? And on the end use level, we also think that we need a holistic approach, looking at what happens in our buildings with transportation and with industry processes that have emissions control. Specifically, we've done a lot of work looking at reducing methane emissions and other super pollutants. So our mission as CATF is to think about how we lead the way towards an affordable and zero carbon energy future. And we focus on pragmatic policies, we look at new business models and strategies, and advancing advanced technologies which are mostly neglected, uh, which no one is really paying attention to. And our approach is really to focus on two things. So we look both at near-term policy wins. So what's happening in the current policy environment and how can we quickly tap into that and try to shift uh, things around. But fundamentally, most of the work we do is focused on foundational systems change because we believe that it is at a systems level that we can drive the change that we need. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about what's done there at the systems level, foundational systems change. And um, here, just a bit, of, uh, in, a bit of insight into how we operate. So basically, we start by inquiring and asking questions and, and thinking, you know, to determine what the necessary actions are. And um, everybody is subject to bias, but we try as much as possible to begin our questioning from a very, very objective position. What really is needed for us to address this climate problem? And then we focus on building the evidence base to support that change that we need. We focus strongly on enlisting actors, educating our actors, but working closely with them to drive the change that we need. And then enacting policies, private sector initiatives that we need to advance new technologies. And then finally, we adjust our strategies as we learn. Sometimes we go and realize that, well, this, this wasn't really a good idea. Let's reset and let's do something different. And so that's basically in the DNA of our thinking as cleaner task force. 
And finally, how do we create impact? We start by changing the narrative, and that's a core part. I'll talk a bit more about this tomorrow, but it's, it's a core part of the work that we do. So uh, in the African context, for instance, we are doing a lot of work to shift the narrative around the role of Africa in the energy transition, around the role of development and squaring that with the climate challenge. We believe that changing the narrative is foundational and fundamental to driving the change that we need. And then we also look at changing technology. And over there, as I said, we rein in the full um, scope of options that we have. Optionality there is the key. And why optionality? We need options because it helps us to hedge against risk. So let's assume that um, we only have two options. Let's say wind and solar is the only options we are looking to and find out that, well, this is not going to take us to where we want to go. But then we have lost the opportunity to, de to develop all these other alternative options. We put ourselves at risk as a climate community. So how do we rein in the entire range of options there in terms of technology? We think seriously about new business models uh, around modular and manufacturable energy systems, advanced um, nuclear, uh, small modular reactors, doing a lot of work in that regard. And then finally, how do we change policy? And how do we enlist actors? How do we work with our partners to be able to shift policy uh, in a way that drives the systems change that we need? So I will end there, and um, I'm going to have a chat with Luke. So. Thank you, excellent. So a lot of the talk around climate seems to be focused on quite a narrow range of reduced consumption or a small number of technologies like wind and solar. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the neglected parts of change that people should be more aware of? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think to start off, um, our clean air task force just to, to make sure to clarify um, we certainly are for wind and solar. We believe that it has a role to play in the energy transition, but we believe that other options should come to play as well. And so we are looking, for instance, at super hot geothermal, which could radically change the landscape of our energy systems. Basically, it's not going to be dependent on uh, your ge geological formations and the availability of geysers, but it's basically geothermal everywhere. And I have the opportunity of exploring what that opportunity looks like in, East, in the East African Rift Valley. We are thinking about zero carbon fuels. Um, what does that mean? Ammonia, hydrogen. And could that power the next fleet of ships uh, that we have? How could that change the transportation industry? So the whole thing came behind that, as I said in my talk, is creating the options and hedging against risk. Because it's not only about emissions reductions it's even more important to think about how we hedge against the, the harmful impacts of climate change, which we may not fully understand the scope of, but are we prepared for it in terms of the solutions that we are embracing and advancing in addressing climate change? Yeah. Amazing, thanks. I look forward to the talk tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So climate has been really front of mind for a lot of people in Australia at the moment. Our recent election, it was a pretty key issue that was decided on it. We've been experiencing floods at the moment, as well as recently fires and crop failures. We're the biggest exporter of coal. We have the 10th highest emissions uh, per capita. Yet we also have um, a big chunk of the world's nuclear. What recommendations do you have people here in this room today, what they could be doing to help reduce the uh, impacts? Yeah, you know, I, I think that fundamentally um, everyone has a role to play in addressing the climate challenge. And from where I sit, um, coming from a developing country, coming from Africa, um, it's, it's so critical for us um, that countries, especially the advanced economies, actually play their part in addressing the climate challenge. Of course, historically, um, these countries have emitted, have emitted more than we have. And so we think that there's a moral responsibility for these countries to play their part in the climate challenge. But how does that happen? In many countries, um, climate change is a, is a political issue. Um, so does that mean that we cannot act if the federal government does not act? In the United States, what uh, we have seen is that even when the federal government has failed to act, states have risen up and have tried to drive change. And I believe that is applicable in a lot of, in a lot of areas where you can actually see a lot of community organizations, even in Africa, a lot of community organizations coming together to drive the change that is needed. Of course, there's a lot we can do on the individual level as well in terms of behavioral change, but I believe that the most critical thing is us using the power of our votes and our voices within our communities to drive what we believe should be the change we would see in the climate space. Amazing. Um, so globally speaking, what do you see as some of the most neglected opportunities in climate action? I, I believe that um, the developing countries um, really hold a key to climate action. And people could have different views about this um, because historically we haven't contributed much, but I think that is really the missing key. And um, if you look at the history of climate philanthropy, for instance, you realize that a lot of the support for climate philanthropy is going to the United States and is going to EU countries. And just about 4% of, of those funds go to countries in Africa, for instance. And the reason being that um, it's almost assumed that there's not much to be done. But this is the region where we are going to see the most significant growth over the coming years. So are we prepared? Are we preparing this region to be able to adopt the infrastructure and the energy systems that will put us on a path towards net zero? And I feel that that is a huge opportunity uh, which is being underexploited. And I'll, I'll spend some more time talking about that neglected opportunity in my talk tomorrow. Amazing. And why do you think it is uh, so neglected? I believe it's, it's neglected for a number of reasons. Uh, I think the first one being um, that it's assumed that emissions are low. And the framing of emissions alone, I think, um, holds us back from implementing effective climate action. Because yes, emissions are low, but this is also the region that is most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. 
So are we investing in resilient infrastructure? Have we thought about the interconnections between our energy systems and the impact on agricultural systems on healthcare in Africa? So this holistic thinking about climate action and what it means, I feel is missing from the climate debate. And so the emphasis is not being placed on where it should because uh, we just focus on reducing emissions, but we do not look at you know, how do you actually avert the impacts of climate change? And are we positioning the most vulnerable communities in the world, in the developing countries in Africa, to be able to, to, be able to actually um, meet this challenge when they come to it? Yeah. Um, what do you see as the role of philanthropy in the climate uh, sector? Huge role. Um, and I think before this session, I was telling folks about, you know, the role of, of philanthropy and even shaping the work that we do at Clean Air Tax Force, specifically the role of the EA community. My colleague, Amanda, here does much more work with fundraising, so she can talk more about it. But philanthropy is extremely critical uh, in achieving the climate goals that we need. And I use Clean Air Task Force as an example. Most of the work we've been able to do as an organization has been possible because we have received support from the EA community to be able to pursue options and to do work which is not mainstream. And um, not you don't have many environmental um, NGOs looking at some of the things that we look at, looking at advanced nuclear, looking at super hot rock geothermal, uh, looking at work around hydrogen. And it's actually hard to have uh, find conventional funders who will put money to this. So philanthropy really shifts the needle in terms of the impacts that we can make with climate action. And um, as we think about embracing the entire suite of technology options, the question is who is going to help support that and make it possible for us to be able to ad advance all these technologies? As we think about the neglected role of Africa in the climate challenge, who is going to put money to that? Because as we do an analysis of conventional fundraising and funding and philanthropy, we realize that not much funds is going to those regions. So. Um, for you to be able to make impact, uh, you need to have philanthropy that supports thinking outside of the box. And um, I think that is going to make a huge difference in, in, in the lives of many people as we have um, an emergence of different types of philanthropy come on the landscape. Yeah. So final question. Uh, we were looking at the graphs up there. We did a bit of poll around what people were expecting. Um, given the global trends and the work that you're doing, uh, are you generally optimistic or pessimistic about our prospects of uh, getting to below that three degrees? I'm really optimistic. And I'm optimistic for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, um, I'm, opt I'm optimistic because at least now we have the technology options. The question is whether we are going to be bold enough uh, to exploit the range of options that we have, whether we are going to move away from politics and actually think pragmatically about what we need to advance the climate solutions that we need. Um, secondly, I'm optimistic because we are beginning to ask the right questions. And um, I think several years ago, um, climate change was such a Western construct that um, in other parts of the world, in Africa and other parts of the world, it was almost um, a foreign 
idea when we began to think about climate change, but that is changing. And people are beginning to ask the right questions. How do we reconcile our development with climate goals? What does it mean? What are the trade-offs? Um, what technologies do we, do we need? Uh, what technologies can adequately displace the fossil alternatives we have? So we have these questions out there. And uh, once you get the questions right, you are likely to begin to walk on the path to the right solutions. And thirdly, what gives me hope is actually sitting you know, in, um, in a setting like this. Um, it's the youth and the energy and the vision that we have, we are thinking very, very differently. And uh, it's personally, it uh, has a very special place in my heart because coming from Africa, currently, we have up to 40% of our population being under the age of 15. That's a lot of young people. And when I see the youth, um, it's really a lot of energy that we can tap into. Um, how could we use um, the resources, the, the energy, the fresh thinking that is coming out of you know, the, the young ones that we have and being part of this community? I believe we can drive change if we are committed to it because we are asking the right questions, we are pushing for change in a way that hasn't happened in the past. And that's what we need to be able to move forward. So I'm really optimistic. Good to hear. Uh, well, thank you so much, Lily. Uh, I look forward to the talk later. Thank Cheers. you, Luke.